0: Wish you knew more about the medical device industry and how you can do your job more effectively and put your career on the fast track? Then stay tuned while industry veteran, Pat Kothe shares strategies and tips from customers and company insiders who help drive the industry. Now let's join Pat as he explores how you can master medical device. Welcome. If an entrepreneur had an idea for a new type of car, Uh, that entrepreneur and the investors would be able to identify the market opportunity, the the risks, uh, put together a timeline, make financial projections, and then project a return on the investment. And if somebody had a new type of airplane, the same thing would be true. And the reason is that entrepreneurs and investors have experience Uh, with similar types of projects, and they can make reasonable assumptions, reasonable reasonable projections. They can assess what the risks are and then manage expectations. Now, I want you to imagine somebody that had an idea for a flying car. People know about airplanes, they know about cars, but not not so much about flying cars. So people's confidence in the projections and expectations and risks would be much different because there isn't a previous, uh, previous path for a flying car. Now, in many ways, that's similar to what we're going to talk about today, and that's a combination medical product that combines a medical device with a pharmaceutical or biologic uh, agent. Patricia Zilliox is my guest today, and she's developing one of these combo products. uh, Patricia has devoted her career to solving problems with the eyes, and she had a very successful career at Alcon, then at the Foundation Fighting Blindness Clinical Research Institute, uh, before joining Ivensis, uh, her current company, as CEO. Now, Ivensis is working on a technology that has the potential to solve a big clinical problem. However, she's also navigating some big challenges. In our conversation, we discuss how a biologics company approaches device design and manufacture, Um, combination product development, uh, the regulatory pathway for such devices, funding challenges, and then how a device uh, differs and is quite similar to pharma and biologics. And and we also discuss how great companies retain great people. Here's our conversation. Patricia, welcome. It is so great to have you here. Join us here today.
1: Good afternoon. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate
0: it, Patricia. Most of our listeners are in the medical device side of things, and you've been in pharma for for your career. I started off in pharma and found that I gravitated towards the the device side of things. Um, but you spent all your career there. What drew you to pharma? And if you can kind of give us a little bit of a history on you know what types of companies, what types of rules uh, that you that you had within
1: pharma. So, what did attract me to pharma? I have a pharmacy degree to start to begin, but uh, I I had two dreams. I always wanted to develop drug. I had an uncle with a pharmacy shop. I like developing drug, and uh, I always wanted to come to the United States because for me it was the country where the American walked on the moon. So I um, I thought there was something magic about you guys here. So. I joined initially, my first experience was in a small company, a French company in France, in the east of France. And uh, they were developing uh, eye drops for eye disease. Uh, and uh, it was great, but uh, it was not accomplishing all my dreams. And very quickly after I joined that company, it was acquired by Alcon. Uh, Alcon in Fort Worth. I didn't know where Fort Worth was on a map, I have to admit. And uh, very quickly, I took that opportunity to... Uh, to, uh, to be transferred here to the headquarter. And I grew up in that company uh, for uh, all my career, for 25 years. Uh, so it for me, it was accomplishing two dreams, uh, being able to do, uh, develop drugs, uh, and being uh, in the United States, because I really thought there was some magic about here. So that's how uh, I arrived here uh, at Alcon.
0: Being here for 30 years or so now. uh, Is it what you expected it to be or, or is is the U S different than what your expectations were?
1: I love it. Uh, It's it's 24, 23 years, actually. I love it. It's everything I wanted to know. It's, I love the way people work. People work hard. They work in teams, they're focused. Uh, I like the work ethics here. I like the collaboration. People get things done. And, uh, I don't think the American people realize how great country it is here. It's very work ethic, uh, uh, there's focus, there's teamwork. Uh, It's not always perfect, I realize that. But uh, it's what I wanted and it's what I expected, and I'm still here.
0: So uh, within Elcon, what roles uh, did you you have? What part of the business uh, were you involved in?
1: So I was always in clinical. I started in clinical trials. Uh, I started with Marcus support trial. And then I grew up in the organization, uh, in retina mainly. Uh, I started the first project. Alcon was working in retinal diseases. Uh, I'm not talking about surgery. I'm talking about drugs. Uh, and, and I grew up in the organization. Uh, when I left in 2011, at that time, Novartis was there. I was head of clinical ophthalmology. Uh, So I never worked directly in devices. I was involved with devices because of drug delivery systems, but I was never involved in the development of device per se. So I was really in all the pharma division.
0: So spending... You know, 23, 24 years at Elcon, that's a substantial amount of of your career, it's a substantial amount of time. I also find it fascinating. Some people are, you know, two, three years with a company and then moving on to the next one, or five or six years, but a, a long, extended period of time with a company uh, can be unique. Uh, so, how, how do you? Uh, look back at, at that portion of your career and say, you know, what kept you motivated? What kept you driving after you've been at the company for that amount of time?
1: So what kept me there was really, it was an awesome company, a lot of management, really a management who wanted to mentor people. And they there was a management in place at that time, wanted to keep people for a long time. So there was a lot of mentoring and growing And the other thing, too, there was opportunity. I wanted to grow the organization. I was given the opportunity to grow. It was not like, you know, I was in a box. And uh, one, as you know, Alcon was sold to Novartis. I stayed two years with Novartis. And I left Novartis in 2011 because uh, it was very silo. And I didn't like that. At Alcon, uh, the organization was really... everybody was involved in the big picture. It was our company, and it was a company of the ophthalmologists. We had a very, very close relationship with ophthalmologists, who are the customer, obviously. And uh, I think that's where a lot of people like me stayed for very long. Very, very protective management, very mentoring, uh, a, a very global approach at every level of the organization, and very close with the ophthalmologies. But I think that was that mayonnaise which makes us stay with that company.
0: Yeah, so the the culture of the company and how they treated the employees, but also uh, we all we all have uh, times in our career where we want to grow and we want to do, every, do other things as well. So they provided you opportunities to grow and to challenge yourself and to work on challenging projects as well.
1: Well, the other thing too, think about, I'm a French citizen with a French accent, uh, educated in France. They accepted me here. They gave me responsibilities. On top of that, I was a female coming from a a country, very chauvinistic. I mean, what can you do more? I mean, uh, I got everything here. So I really enjoyed it.
0: Oh, that's great. And and uh talent wins. Talent always wins. So that's great that it was recognized and you had, had a great opportunity there. So let's talk about you know post Elcon. And I want to get to the uh company that you're leading right now, uh Ivensis. So can you tell us a little bit about you know how you got involved with IVensis and what the mission is of the company?
1: So there's an in-between Ivensis and Alcon, actually. So there's something which is called Foundation Fighting Blindness. And uh, when I left in 2011, Novartis, uh, that's where I went. I went to uh, Foundation Fighting Blindness. I could not go in ophthalmology because Novartis was not very happy when I left. And they gave me an uncomplete for five years. And I joined this organization in, in Washington, D.C., and it was absolutely awesome. So what was awesome about that organization, it's a foundation, a research foundation And their mission is really to find treatment for eye disease due to gene mutation. Kids who are getting blind. And uh, my contribution over there was really about the outcome culture over there, the way of thinking of drug development. And uh, we did awesome thing over there. Just as an example, when I joined in 2011, there was one clinical trial for RP. Uh, Today, there are about 300 clinical trials going on for RP. And I can guarantee you that I don't think there's any single study where t- Foundation Fighting Blinders didn't have their hands in it. The vision of Mr. Gunn was absolutely amazing. And uh, so what, what I did, my role over there was really over there to work on clinical endpoints, try to help company to be created so we can develop drugs, uh, treatment for this uh, disease. Uh, and it's while I was doing that so we created a company in Paris. Uh, and uh, that's how I met investor who introduced me to Ivensis. Uh, uh, why did I leave foundation? Why did I join iBenzis? I love, I was very, very intrigued by the technology of IBENCIS. It was different. It was a device, two devices, a plasmid. It was viral gene therapy without the virus. It was something I knew there was a medical need. There was something I knew would be accepted by the ophthalmologist. When you talk about marketing you know how we're going to market this, this approach. I knew there that there was a need for the market. Uh, I knew it would be difficult, uh, and at the same time, for personal reasons I mentioned before, uh, I wanted to get closer to my father in France. Uh, so this was an opportunity for me to, and, and I think I had done what I could do for Foundation Fighting Blindness. I had done what I wanted, as I said, there was one trial, today there were 300 trial. I did bring all my, my expertise to them, it was now time to move on. So I joined this because of the technology first. Uh, Second, uh, because uh, I think I could bring something from Alcon and also from foundation. I really don't want to underestimate foundation as well. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the the challenge uh, that you're trying to solve, what, what is the, uh, the issue that you're, uh, the clinical issue that you're trying to solve?
1: So today when you treat the eye disease uh, of the retina, uh, there's one key disease, which is called age-related macular degeneration, and there are two forms, the wet form and the dry form. The wet form, there are, they are treatments available, which are called anti-veget, Usantis, uh, Ilea, you probably heard about. They do require an injection in the eye directly every month, every month, every two months. Your elderly patients, who well, are generally 70, 80 years old, they have to go to the clinical uh, office and get a shot in the eye every single month in both eyes. But it is a leading cause of blindness. Uh, uh, I'm sure you have a grandmother around you who was affected by the disease. And uh, you probably realize that in the last two years, going to a practice every month uh, for a shot in the eye was not something feasible. So as a consequence, uh, lack of compliance, patients lose their vision. It doesn't work and you can, it's too late to treat. So, I knew with the technology we are developing, we can avoid that need to reinject every month. I know that we can come back and reinject every six months or maybe every year. So, here we're going to make a difference for the patient. The second indication we're also targeting is dry AMD, which is the dry form of macular degeneration. There's no treatment available today. These are patients, they have accumulation of drusen type of debris in the retina, they coalesce together, and then you have what we call geographic atrophy, these lesions become big, and the patient gets totally blind. And today there's no treatment, and uh, there are some treatments developed with some some pharmacological approach, which again will require a shot in the eye every month. And here again, our proposal is we can't. We believe we can slow down progression of disease, prevent this patient to get totally blind by not injecting them every month, but maybe every six months or every year. So this is the second area that can, we can really make a difference. The third area is when you talk about gene therapy. What is gene therapy? You take plasmid like we do, but you put them in a virus. And then it's permanent there. It's going to probably work for, and it does work, because there's one treatment approved, which is called SPARK for RP65, which is one type of mutation for RP. It works, but it's there for permanently. So once again, if you have kids who are getting blind and uh, you want to uh, edit their gene mutation or augment their gene mutation, gene therapy with a virus can make a difference. But if you think about elderly people, If you want to stop it, you can't anymore. And we know today that viruses injected in VI, there are some immune reaction and therefore some side effects. So three good reasons why I believe in this technology, why I believe we can make a difference, even if it's tough to develop, even if you have device, I know we can make a difference.
0: So we've, we've got a kind of a combination device here. There'll be a device and a pharmaceutical. Let's just focus on the pharmaceutical for a second. And I don't want to, I don't want to get too deep into it, but what's the mechanism of action? How, how does this pharmaceutical change the progression of the disease?
1: So first of all, I need to correct you. It's not a pharmaceutical, it's a biologics. So it's a big difference, not the same division at the FDA. It's not a chemical agent. It's a plasmid. I'm sure you remember your courses in high school, plasmid. You encode the plasmid to produce a therapeutic protein. It's a protein that you produce, not a chemical. And what we do here, our approach, we take this plasmid, we inject them around the eye on the ciliary muscle. There is a cartoon on our website that explains that very well. If you do that, nothing will happen. So you come with a device, a second device, which is called electrotransfection. And basically, you do a little hole in the cell of the ciliary muscle. The plasmid will enter the ciliary muscles, and uh, then machinery will take over, and your ciliary muscle will become a little biofactory, producing protein directly in the vitreous and in the choroid. Very important, because that's what you want. And voila, you are done. So what we did, we developed two devices, one which is, To inject to allow us to inject exactly where we need to, which is linked to a little pulse generator, which is going to do the electrotransfection. That's how it works. So very creative, by the same token, very simple. But it is about at the end of the day, it's going to be a biologic. It's not going to be a medical device. We we have to obey to the medical device regulation, but it's still a biologic.
0: So if I'm a uh, medical device company, and I really don't have any expertise in biologics. Uh, I'm going to go out and search for somebody who has that, has that expertise. So uh, when as a biologics company, you don't have the expertise in in medical device, how did you approach you know that you needed a device, how did you approach uh, the development of the device? Is it something that you insource people or do you outsource the development of this?
1: So in this situation, remember I joined the company as CEO only three and a half years ago. So there was already a device which was developed. And the way the founder was an ophthalmologist in Paris, the way they did it, she's herself uh, an ophthalmologist. She worked with a small medical device company in Paris. These are garage companies, I would say. And they started to create from scratch. They also had to put VIP. And they started to work in animals, of course. And then slowly go in bigger animals so it can go in human. Uh, what we have done since I joined, we had to go in human, of course, to make sure we can do it. And uh, there's a regulation from the FDA, from the European Agency, which says you have to collect information to optimize the design. So what we have done, we have surrounding ourselves with experts in medical devices as well as ophthalmologists. Ophthalmologists who likes devices, you want surgeon, you don't want your uh, ophthalmologists uh, who prescribe you eye drug. You want somebody who actually does surgery, who is used to do this type of things, who can help you to design the device. That's what we did. And uh, we collected what we call user feedback, and then we tested in animals, uh, in big animals, and in clinical trials, and that's where we are today. So you're right.
0: different. So when I hear about customer discovery, um, it's, to me it's it's different depending on the type of device or type of product that you have uh, i i would not feel comfortable going into the biologic space i wouldn't think that i would have the expertise in the area to to uh gain from the customer what that devo- you know what that biologic bi- biologic uh would need need to do did you run into the same thing on the device side where you you were trying to understand the language of device and the language of the needs of the surgeons and while you're identifying what the needs of that product were supposed to be. Was that something that you guys worked out or is that something that you relied on your partners who are developing the device to do?
1: No, we we did ourselves, first of all, on the biological we knew what we were doing. On the device part, we went we had engineer in house who helped us to design. And we partner with experts in the field here in the United States uh, and with manufacture. So we went to get that expertise. And as you know, on a device, you need multiple expertise, uh, especially here. We have two devices. Um, and each time we develop something, we had to test in, in animal models to make sure that we say it's going to do what it's supposed to do. So we really partner with a lot of different engineers. And we partner with ophthalmologists, surgeons who have experience in devices. Uh, On the biological part, it's easier because that's our expertise. Uh, Same thing for pharmaceutical, by the way. You know, you put pharmacologists and toxicologists in the lab and they're going to do what they have to do. But when it comes to device, as you know, who is the user? It's the surgeon. So it was very important to have that partnership. How did I do that? Remember, I came from Alcon. We did devices, so that's something I knew how to do.
0: So uh, combination devices, uh, there may be a a device that is um, uh, designed in a certain way, which may affect the performance of the biologics. So how did you manage the program? Because the biologics may be slightly changed, or the device may be slightly changed, which could affect the usability of the, the technology, uh, the, that combination. So did you have a team that was involved with this or did you have one team on the on the device side and another team on the biologic side?
1: So that's an excellent question. So actually only one team. So we had two teams, but not device biologic. We had a team at the university with a founder and we had a team in the lab. And uh, you're absolutely right. The, the, the challenge was to find... Uh, the amount of plasmid you inject in the ciliary muscle and the electropulse generation, what's going to be the pulse that you want to administer to get the best outcome in terms of production of protein. Uh, there's a team of preclinical people, biologists, who work closely with the engineer and they tried and tried. They did multiple animals until they found the best combination amounts uh, injected in the ciliary muscle. Versus electrotransfection. That was then modelized based on the size of the ciliary muscle and the eye of humans. It was modelized to go in big animals, and then we are the big animals, obviously. And uh, that's what we did. But it was a combination of both together, and it started in small animals, of course.
0: When you're designing this and developing this combo product, what are some just from the design standpoint, and development standpoint? What are some of the other challenges that uh, that you've run into, and, and and how do you how do you get to resolution of some of these things?
1: But on the device, there were tons of tons of issues. The first thing there is obviously the design, trying to find the right parameter IP. You have to protect your IP every single day. To make, because this is the heart of a the business, VIP, the IP, IP. And then there's regulation. Uh, as you know, uh, and I'm sure you're gonna smile at that, but when you do, when you have expertise in medical device, you work with organizations who have quality systems in place, who have uh, you know the SOPs, they train everybody. We were a biological, we were a bunch of biologists. So a quality system, when I arrived in Paris, the team didn't know what it was. So, so here we had to hire a company in Denver to put in place for us quality system, SOPs, reproductivity, validation. That was a challenge, easy to do for somebody who knows what medical device is, but for a bunch of biologists who are you know, used to mix things together, that didn't work for devices. So that was a big learning curve and an expensive one too. So we had to beef up the organization to meet the regulation.
0: So these experts that you hired on the device side of things, or you partnered with on the device side of things, are they going to be manufacturing those devices? Or are you going to take over the manufacturing they're doing, the, the design side?
1: So here too, it's a little bit complex. We started to work with a small team in Paris, one small team for the uh, for the electropulse generator, and another team in east of France, in Besançon, for the uh, for the ocular device. Uh, And we had to help them and babysit them to put quality system in place to do all I did say at the same time. We went in the clinic, we collected information to optimize. In order to optimize this information, we actually hired a team in Indianapolis here who worked with J&J on cell therapy and other companies who knew how to take this information to better design and optimize the design of these uh, devices. And then we had to try it in, an, in a non-human primate to make sure that it would do what it's supposed to do. And then we got ophthalmologists here in the country in the United States to give our input, everything documented, how it feels, how it works, blah, blah, blah. And now that we're there, we are transferring the manufacture here in the United States in Minneapolis with Philips and, uh, and Minitronics. Uh, why? Just because again of the capacity, the capability, because somewhere we need to make sure that these organizations they know how to manufacture, they have quality system, they have the people to do it, they know how to do it, it's documented, they can reduce the cost and they can deal with supply chain issues as you know today. So I hate to say it, we left France uh, for uh, it was the right people at that time to be very hands on how we design. But while we grow, now that we are teenager, we need to go and go to the bigger manufacturer.
0: So the product you've got design freeze on the product. The product is is completed. It's being manufactured, and your and your partner is Minitronics for make, for making that particular component of the uh, of the final product.
1: So Minitronics is doing the pulse generator. Or Philips Rolex like, is doing the ocular device. It's uh, it's almost frozen. Yeah, the design is almost frozen. So you have to. This is your field of expertise. You have to develop the molding. You have to make sure you have all the tools, and uh, so we can go ahead with manufacture. I'm learning. I'm, re- I'm, uh, I'm yeah, learning. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, Patricia, uh, where do you stand with the device right now? Are you in clinical trials? Are you in humans? Where 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 do things stand?
1: So that's an excellent question too, because that's something that biological people don't understand. Uh, when you develop a biological norm or a pharmaceutical. You do your talks, you go in human and you try if it works or not in humans. In our situation, we had to get an in between steps, which was can we actually do electrotransfection in VI? Does it hurt? Is it painful? And is the device perfectly designed? So we had to go in a clinical trial, which we did in, a, in an injection, in an in, in indication which is called non infection uveitis. It's a systemic disease. Uh, where patients are totally blind, there is no treatment available. And the goal of that study was really to demonstrate that A, we can put the device, uh, inject plasmid in the eye. We can do electrotransfection, It's feasible by the doctor. It's, it doesn't hurt the patient. It's safe. There's no burning or whatever. And we, it's safe also for the plasmid. And also, we had to collect user feedback to optimize the device. We did it. We enrolled 18 patients in France and United States and the UK. We did it. We got that done. We're done. So the challenge today is in front of investors and you ask the question: are we in clinical stage or are we not in clinical stage? We are not in clinical stage for the target indication we have, but we did validate the technology in the clinical trial. Does it make sense? Safety. Yeah,
0: it does. Yeah. So so you've got a portion of your uh, your clinical data, your proof of concept. So you're, you're going to be moving forward with that. And we'll, and we'll get to the fundraising side in in a second, because that's a fascinating, a fascinating thing. But before we get there, let's talk about regulatory and what the regulatory strategy is for a combo product, U S versus rest of world, and kind of how you approached regulation and how you approached, uh, the development of the product based on what you heard back from agencies.
1: So when I joined the company, the company was French, so they dealt mainly with the French regulation. And at that time, the regulation on the device was a little bit loose. It was a little bit easy. Uh, I wanted really to move in the U.S. because I wanted to work with the FDA and I wanted to have accept, acceptance of uh, technology by uh, ophthalmologists in the United States. I was here with Falcon, that's what I wanted. I knew that I could get that support here. So that's what we did. We did one first study in France, and then we did the study here. In terms of regulation, it's considered as a biological combo. So it's a biologic. It's a, We are uh, we're going to file at the end a BLA, and it's going to be reviewed by the by the, the CBER, which is the biological division of the FDA. In terms of devices, we have to obey and meet all the requirements from the FDA regarding devices. That's definitely like for a regular device, except we don't file for a mark we don't file for a 510K. For France and Europe, regulation has changed not very long ago, last year, and now for devices, they basically align with the FDA. But as you know, Europe is not a happy family yet. Even if you have a new regulation in Europe, each country can still decide whether or not what type they're going to accept or not. So that's one of the reasons why moving with clinical trial in the U.S. only right now, because as a small company like us, we don't have the people and the, uh, the support in terms of man hours to go in each country and negotiate in each country what type of regulation we are going to want.
0: So with a device... Um the device, just as it as it sits right now, doesn't do anything unless it it's a, in combination with the biologic, correct?
1: Absolutely, the device alone is not going to do anything. So you have to interact with biologic with the ocular device, which is disp- disposable, and that ocular device is linked to the electrotransfection plug generator.
0: So, from from a regulatory standpoint, is it a combination product or is the device regulated by one section and the biologic regulated by another section
1: so as i said it's a bla it's a biologic and inside you have two devices and you have to make sure that these devices every box has been checked for medical device which is verification testing stability blah 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 that's it but at the end it's a bla which is being uh, evaluated
0: Great. So let's let's talk a little bit about where you where you sit because doing clinical clinical trials is quite expensive uh, to do that. Where do you sit on the funding side? And what kind of challenges do you have with funding when you're dealing with a combination product? Because in my experience, medical device people do medical devices, pharma does pharma, biologics does biologics, and these combos are a little bit tricky. So how have you found the capital markets for, you know, funding a medical or a, a, a combination product?
1: Very difficult and very difficult because I think you you touched on it. a um, um, uh, Venture capital, if they invest in a device, they know where the money is going to go and they know what's the cycle of this device and they know when they're going to get the money back. The venture capital who invests in biology, same thing. The cycle is longer, but they know it. For us, it's duration is our enemy. Why? Because as I said a minute ago, we are in the clinical trial to demonstrate the safety of the device. Now we have to go in clinical trial to demonstrate efficacy. It's separated. And that's a killer because for venture capital, it's too long. And it's too much money and too long. So that has been very, very challenging. We have been able to secure some fund. I'm still trying to raise $30 million while we speak. But the the challenge is the the people who are able to attract are people who really understand ophthalmology very well, who understand the medical need and understand the value proposition we're bringing. Because if you have a venture capital in front of you who just want to make money quickly, they're not going to get it. They're not going to like us because we're too slow for them. We're not a medical device. We're biologic and we're too slow. They want quick, 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 as you know. So it has been very, very, very challenging to raise money for a combo.
0: Have you seen any difference being a French company in terms of being able to raise funding?
1: The French company, uh, it is a challenge too, because we're headquartered in France, but we're incorporated in the U.S. So technically, we're still a French company. The IP is in France. We could do what we call a flip, which brings the headquarters here, but then you have to pay for the IP to transfer here, which we may do one day. But when you talk to venture capital, uh, many of them, they have an office in Europe, they have an office here, they have an office in China. So if I talk to some of the venture capital here, they're going to say, well, you go to, uh, you go to the French office over there to, uh, to raise money, so we're not going to invest. So some of the venture capital don't like the fact that we're French, absolutely
0: so if you look at, look at kind of the challenges that you've got, you've got a technical challenge, you've got a, uh, a people challenge, an IP challenge, um, funding challenge. Is funding the challenge that you're dealing with right now?
1: Yeah, I would say it's definitely the challenge. Because the device, you know, okay, you get it, I understand. The biological. core, okay, it's all about talks and preclinical uh, people, doctors, it's nothing different than I was doing at Alcon. But the money is a challenge because it doesn't grow. It doesn't grow on trees, <laughs> and it's definitely it's not data driven. That's what's difficult. You can go there, you can pitch. You can say you come from Alcon, all the experience I have, best team. It doesn't matter. It's not data driven, and that's uh, that's the challenge.
0: Was this the biggest surprise that you've had in the past couple of years?
1: I would say yes, because at Alcon, money was growing on trees, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't realize that, <laughs> and so I would say that's definitely uh, the biggest surprise it hit me in the face very quickly and I didn't expect it would be that difficult.
0: yeah, so it it, it really is interesting because um it, 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 nothing changes. You still have a market need, you still have a product, you still have the all the challenges that we we just discussed there. but it's getting people to understand. Um, the timelines and the risk associated with, with the deal. Yeah. It's a, it's a little bit, a little bit different pharma biologics devices. They're, they're all a little bit different, but it's, it's a, it's a clinical challenge that you're trying to solve and you've got a technology that can do that. It's really interesting to me that the funders are uh, more hesitant on, on a combo product.
1: Well I really think in 20 years from now we're going to see a lot of combo not only in VI but everywhere in diabetes you mentioned diabetes today about uh, insulin administration I mean it's going to be more and more common I would not be surprised that one of these days we're gonna have these uh, you know probably these stem cells or whatever will produce insulin on their own it's going to be device combo about it same thing so in 20 years we're going to be there but in the meantime, we have to educate the field. We have to educate investors. We have to educate uh, uh, regulatory agencies. Uh, uh, right now, I would say we are the one uh, starting all this different thinking. But I would not be surprised that in twenty years from now, it's going to be very common. I will, I'm, I'm pretty think so for every disease area.
0: Patricia, we haven't talked about reimbursement yet either for a combo combo product. Does that change anything?
1: Yes, actually, it changed things. In a positive way for doctors, because here you have a new procedure. So what you do, right, it's a new coding. And new coding needs better reimbursement for the person who administers the procedures. And in terms of reimbursement, you still have to demonstrate the value of your therapy for your patients. So in our situation... We're going to be much cheaper than viral gene therapy. Viruses are tremendously expensive, as you know. It's uh, some of these uh, disease for RP. It's, you know they talk about five hundred thousand dollars a nine or more. Uh, for us, it's going to be much cheaper, easier to manufacture too, and new coding. So I think for my reimbursement, I'm not panicking at all, uh, because I know that doctors are going to like the new coding. They don't make much money on IVT today and uh for the patient and the reimbursement agency I know I'm not worrying because it's going to be cheaper than gene therapy
0: so kind of kind of going back I and mean, you look at the, there's a technical risk there's a there's an IP risk I'm looking, thinking from an uh, investor there's there's all these risks that, that come in here and you, it sounds like the biggest risk that they're concerned with is timing yeah is it is that right so is it because it's unsure when you put a and B together, it doesn't necessarily equal C. It may equal Z. <laughs> so is, is it because that there's more – when you put two unknown technologies that it could multiply the risk? Or is it just the, the overall time frame is going to be greater than a, a device or a biologic?
1: So I think we are adding a risk with a device, definitely. And in terms of timelines, they like to see inflection point. What, what kind of inflection I'm going to have to reassure them and increase the valuation of a company? And that's what I'm lacking, you know, because everything is so slow with the device. I'm not, I don't have enough data to reassure them on an ongoing basis. And uh, therefore, they, don't, they cannot predict when they're going to have a return on investment, and they hate that. They, they want to be able to have a timeline on when we're going to get money back. And I can't do that.
0: So from a, a, an overall planning standpoint, if you, you assume that you have funding f- uh, for this, what does the clinical trial length look like uh, for the next trial that you're doing? Is it a two-year follow-up or what what does it look like?
1: So for IMD, it's very easy. Uh, it's very highly regulated by the FDA. It's slow disease progression. So these patients, you have to follow them for two years for GA, and you have to demonstrate there's efficacy. For wet AMD, it's about one year. You have to demonstrate you have efficacy. Uh, Generally, you have to enroll at least 200, 300 patients minimum. That takes about one year to enroll. So you calculate one year enrollment, two years for uh, follow-up, and that brings you a total to three years minimum for wet AMD, four years for dry AMD, and you need two studies. And one study is generally about $60, dollars. So you multiply by two. That's just for phase three.
0: Yeah, and, and and then once you once you compile all that data, it may take you take you you know three six months to compile that data, get in front of the agency
1: and review. And it's a process, which is why also uh, at that time, if we have good data in between, the goal would be probably to get acquired by a. Uh, by a big pharma, or go to IPO and is mutual money, is one or the other.
0: Well, that that is kind of the other funding source, isn't it? So you've got grant type thing, but that's not going to get you near the amount of money that you need. There's the the VCs uh, can do it, but there's also strategic investors. So for this particular disease state, is this our uh, strategic investors? Device companies are they pharma companies? Uh, who, who is the uh, most, uh, most likely, likely candidate?
1: So that's a good question because in the United States, uh, I would say the strat- I thought initially it would be a strategic investor would be somebody who does work on biologic and devices. That would be a logic for me. But actually, I think it's more companies who are interested in VI and who wanted to go in gene therapy with viruses and they got, they got scared lately because of a safety issue with viruses. But for me, they are the logical one. Then the second question is, which pharma do you want to go? In United States, you know, there's a lot of competition. There are a lot of us who would like to be acquired by pharma. In Europe, you have less pharmaceutical company. You have all the, the, the one in Switzerland who are also here. So there are more American than Swiss. But then you have something which is called China. They would love your technology because they have a very aging population. They are looking for uh, assets like ours. uh, But then you have a strategic decision, you know, how to go over there and uh, what does it mean? So that's another question.
0: Um, Is this something from a go-to-market strategy? Is this something that uh, uh, one company would sell the total system? Uh, would you separate it out? Get your biologics here. Get your uh, get your device from a separate company. Have you, have you have you investigated that or thought through that yet?
1: Not yet. We, I mean, we talk about that, of course, and we have different opinion. All depend on the clinical trials. If, for example, if and I'm just it's absolutely you know theory, theory here. If for one indication you have to inject every six months and the other indication you have to inject every year, and the parameters are not exactly the same, that's going to be one aspect. If you can do the same device for any type of plasmid, it's a different approach. So we could do a, a, an approach where we license out some of the plasmid and we sell the devices disposable, and we do some coding so it cannot be used or. We pay by the fee by the user, like you do for cataract surgery or for laser. Uh, we could do that. We have options, and I'm very honest with you. We have not tackled all these options yet. We have not. It's too early.
0: Long time away from that. So, so the devices is are the devices 100% of the device disposable, one-time use product, or is there some some portion that is
1: um, reusable? The ocular device is totally disposable. The, the pulse generator is going to be like an iPad. It's going to be in the office, and we set it here. We we'll just give it to each office for use. But the ocular device is disposable, one-time use.
0: Well, it sounds like you've got your work cut out for you on the funding side to do it. But you know, as, as I said, I mean, we're talking about a therapy and a, a real market need out there to have some technology developed here whether it's a device whether it's a a combo or or a, a biologics really doesn't make any difference it's the it's the therapy that's needed to solve this issue now it's a matter of how can you get through to the funders to um, you know make make this happen
1: yeah that's basically it
0: <laughs> <laughs> so patricia thanks so much for spending some time with us Coming from pharma, um, you've learned about device, you've learned some things about device, and you've learned that there's differences within the different tracks that w- that we come from. What have you learned that you can apply, you know, that w- that we can apply? Either if you're a pharma company, you know, what can we learn about the device side? Or if you're a device, what you can learn from the pharma side of things to make us better?
1: Mm, that's a difficult question. I would say I focus mainly on pharma in, when I was at Alcon. There's one thing on device I would say, uh, yes, you need the best engineer in the world to help you, but don't, don't go too late to see the users. The user for me are the ophthalmologist and pick the right one. Not every ophthalmologist would give you the best advice. Don't wait too late. Uh, uh, I would say for us we the, the, uh, the founder was an ophthalmologist so that helps uh, but don't wait too late because that's also the one we're going to accept when you said market acceptance, they're going to play a role accepting your technology as well and that's difficult to do and the reason it's difficult is because we have a small team, we're just 13 people so we have to do everything uh, at Alcon we were just 20 people just to, to talk to the doctor about getting feedback on the device but that's, some, that's a step which is critical. I don't think I did a fabulous job. I can be criticized about the job I have done. And I probably something I should do better, is getting the feedback from the user as early as possible.
0: I think that's something that we all need to do more of. You know, I've talked about this extensively on this podcast is getting customer feedback is one of the most important things that we can do before we even start designing a product is really understanding what what their needs are. And having having clinicians involved in your development program is kind of a must, yeah, but, but it's not only just one clinician, it's a wide variety of clinicians because everyone's got a piece of the puzzle we all have a little bit of understanding of of things and sometimes clinicians can have differing viewpoints you really need to to, to design a product given all of the feedback not just who's on your medical advisory board
1: yeah and and for a small company what i want to say is you know if if i have ophthalmology listening to me today they don't say patricia you need to walk the talk well yeah i know that but you, we are a small team, and uh, we have to do everything in a small team. And uh, that's. I would say that's a challenge, too. You know what you have to do. I know what I have to do. And I don't do it all the time because I don't have the resources to do it. So it's, it's, uh, it's not easy. <laughs>
0: Oh uh, no! I, I I totally get it. Uh, the startup world is is a is a different world, but at the same time, even if you're in a large company, you may have a lot of a lot of people there, but then you've got a whole lot of different priorities too. So you you may be dealing with rolling out a new product or rolling out a new corporate program. So there's there's never seems to be enough time to do the most important thing and that's talk to our customers and I find that uh, across startups as well as large companies because a large companies in many ways and I've been part of them you get you get large you get arrogant and you think you know your customers and the customers are always changing so you really need to go out there even as a large company you need to go out there and, and and make sure that your understanding of what the product needs are, are actually the product needs.
1: Yeah. And that's why Alcon was very good. I think when we talk about learning, I think that's something I learned at Alcon is to be close to the customer. But it's to be able to afford the time to be close to the customer too.
0: Patricia is dealing with some interesting issues. Many of us have only dealt with medical devices. Uh, But imagine having to learn the basics and also the intricacies of pharma or biologics and then manage a development program. A few of my takeaways from today's conversation. First of all, uh, the approach to learning. Uh, as we said, you know she's a, a company, or the, the company is a biologics company that's developing a, a a device. So what do you do? Do you go it alone and learn? Do you bring in experience to partner with experts? Well, she did a little bit of both. Uh, They started off going alone and learning, but then bringing in the experienced people inside the company and finally deciding to partner with experts. How uh, this works for you if you're managing a a project is going to be different. Uh, Every situation is going to be a little bit different, but taking a look at those options, uh, really making sure that uh, you're balancing off the dollars that you've got to invest, the time to, to bring the product to market, and then some strategic issues with dealing with partners and potential um, partnership opportunities as well as acquisition opportunities becomes really interesting uh, to look at. The second uh, takeaway was uh, what you think you know uh, versus what real life is. Uh, Patricia kind of dealt with that when uh, she thought that uh, her experience and the market opportunity were going to lead to uh, easy funding Uh, really didn't turn out that way. Even though you've got great technologies, uh, you've got challenges in developing those technologies and also challenges on the funding side because you're hitting something that's different than what other people uh, expect finally we started off with her experience with Alcon and I think it's worth worth uh, talking about because Alcon is an excellent company and Alcon was dedicated to retaining good people and the way they did that is through mentoring and providing opportunities to grow as you're managing your companies just can continue to focus on that how do you retain people it's focusing on them and their development thank you for listening Make sure you get episodes downloaded to your device automatically by liking or subscribing to the Mastering Medical Device Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please spread the word and tell a friend or two to listen to the Mastering Medical Device Podcast as interviews like today's can help you become a more effective medical device leader. Work hard, be
1: kind.